Welcome to On Boys, real talk about parenting, teaching, and reaching tomorrow's men. We're your co-hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net and Janet Allison of boysalive.com. This episode is brought to you by Strike Club, a line of acne-fighting skincare products for boys. No need for a complicated skincare regimen. Strike Club makes it simple. All your son has to do is rinse his face and body with everywhere wash when he showers. Try Strike Club today. Go to strikeclub.com and use the discount code on boys to save 10%. That's strikeclub.com, S T R Y K E club.com, and the discount code is on boys. Middle school, Phyllis Fagel says, is a stew of simmering hormones, shifting relationships, and increased expectations. It is also a time of massive confusion and overwhelm, both for middle school boys and their parents. Today, we are talking with Phyllis Fagel, parent, counselor, and author of Middle School Matters, the 10 key skills kids need to thrive in middle school and beyond, and how parents can help. Welcome, Phyllis. Thanks for having me today. We should mention that you are not just an author. You are not just a school counselor. You are in the trenches with the rest of us, parenting, teens, and a middle schooler, I believe. Yep, I'm on my middle schooler number three. He's my last to go through. He's in sixth grade now. So... Does it get easier? I think third children in general are easier because they have to go through in (laughs) a gentler way. They just sort of know that everyone is tired (laughs) and they tend to be more easygoing. I could have just gotten lucky, but he seems to be a pretty chill middle schooler. I think that third and fourth children might be a little easier, partly because we have lowered our expectations dramatically. You know, you know a lot more now (laughs) about what is reasonable to expect from a middle school boy than you did when you started this journey. That's 100% true. So, middle school boys. One of the most fascinating things to me as a parent of boys has been the insight into what middle school boys are really thinking about and how I perceived middle school boys, say, when I was in seventh grade. You work with a lot of boys. I know you facilitate a boys group. So share with us, what have you learned? What is on the minds of middle school boys? I think the misconception about middle school boys that's most prevalent is that they're really immature, that they're unable, that they're not interested in unloading the psychological burdens that they're grappling with, and that they adhere and enjoy adhering to a lot of the gender stereotypes that we hold about boys. And one thing that's become clear over the years, particularly through the boys group, which has been a safe space for them to admit what they're really thinking about and what they really care about, is that boys very much want to connect with their friends. They very much want to have meaningful bonds where they can confide in their friends and know that they can trust their friends. They really want to be able to be their authentic self. And that might mean they really like school and they really don't like sports. 
I think another misconception is that they don't worry about things like body image. What I found over the years, and I think social media is in part responsible for this, is that boys too are getting subjected to all of these unrealistic images about who they should be and what they should look like. And I'm hearing more from boys about body insecurity. I think that that whole body image issue is so tough for boys in middle school because there's such a drastic range. I've gone to middle school basketball games and some of those kids are shaving and have full mustaches. And then (laughs) there was like my kid at that point in time who still looked like he was in third grade, but he was actually in, you know, seventh grade. Yes. And what makes it even harder is you're suddenly in a new developmental phase where you're acutely aware of exactly how you stack up to everybody around you. So a year earlier, you might not have cared that you were half the height of the kid standing next to you on the bleachers during the chorus concert. But suddenly, all you can think about is what if I never grow? What if I'm the shortest person on the planet for the rest of my life? And that matters in a way that it didn't matter before. Mm-hmm. And you are very aware of other people and you're starting to hope other people like you. And when all the images you see are of these very attractive, very mature men, that's tough. Yes. And then on top of all of that, they're starting to get interested in romantic relationships. So they're more aware of how they stack up to their peers in terms of their level of attractiveness to whatever gender they happen to be attracted to. But that also comes into play at this age. And how do we as parents support them? We can reassure you're going to grow. You will, you know, you will, by the time you graduate from high school, you will probably be shaving. But what do (laughs) parents say in the meantime? So I think that very well-meaning instinct is to reassure them that their time will come and that they will become taller and that this is a short-lived phenomenon and that they're great and perfect just the way they are, but that invalidates where they're coming from. And so a more effective approach for helping them feel better is to say, if I felt like the shortest kid in the class, that would bother me too, and I can understand why this is troublesome for you, and then tell them. Perhaps there's a a story of someone else in the family who is a late bloomer who started out really short, and now, you know, Uncle Bob is 6'4", but also reassuring them that whatever they are will be good enough. And that's really what they're looking for. Not for you so much to say you're going to be this height or that height, but just to let them know, especially at an age when they're forming their identity and trying to figure out if they're good enough to really reassure them that they're perfect just as they are. That am I good enough question you write in your book is a core question for all middle schoolers, boys and girls. But I think it's something that's really important for us as parents and educators, grandparents to keep in mind that these kids are looking all around them for reassurance, basically that they're okay. Yes, and with boys, the way they try to get that reassurance can sometimes seem uh, veer toward the obnoxious. So they might yell something out that's inappropriate. They might push someone to get a rise out of them. They might use humor in ways that others think are rude. And so we have to also remember that while they're trying to figure out if they're good enough and they're doing everything they can to make sure they're good enough and funny enough and well-liked enough, they also are lacking in skills. And we have to cut them a lot of slack as they are developing those skills. We have to dig into this obnoxious part. Having lived with four boys, I am acutely familiar with what you're talking about. 
And you wrote a few things in your book that just cracked me up. Uh, in one sentence, you wrote, a mature eighth grade boy may baffle his parents by sticking his head in a toilet for fun on social media. <laughs> and I was sitting in a public place and I just burst out laughing because <laughs> yes, boy moms especially, this does not make sense to us. Help break this down, help explain it. And how do we know, like, should I worry about this? Should I let this happen? How do I respond? So I completely understand that as a boy mom myself, they, they <laughs> are capable of doing things that are baffling. One of the other stories I share in the book is about a kid who, for fun and for shock value, started exchanging pictures with a friend on a, on his same sports team of his private parts and they were just goofing around it wasn't sexual it was just silly and then the mom was spot checking his phone and came across a bunch of pictures of her kids private parts and some other kids private parts and was like what is this she just really couldn't make heads or tails of it but felt he had gone too far and knew that she, there was some teaching that had to happen related to to what they were doing to expose themselves in that way <laughs> and permanence and all of that. So it's impossible for us as adults who are rational, logical thinkers to most of view time. something like most of the time, or we try, we like to think of ourselves that way. It's hard for us to see something like that and make sense of it. But if you're that boy and you think it's really hilarious, then you're going to want to do more of it. You might even want to send it to like some other people so other people can appreciate how funny you are. Because it's yeah. so I, funny. Yeah. Because it's really funny. So mm -hmm. there, I just shared this story the other day with a group. I was talking to my son and although maybe don't turn me in for sharing this story other than to your podcast listeners. So he came home and he said, I want to tell you something, but I'm afraid that if I tell you, then you will never get me a phone. And I said, well, I'm never getting you a phone anyway, so you may as well tell me this story. And he said, well, here's what, my, what happened between a couple of my friends. And he shared this story. Of, it was a, a story involving a boy and a girl. And the boy had asked the girl to send him a picture without her shirt on. And they kind of knew better. And I guess they decided to include a bikini top so it wasn't quite as okay. scandalous. And you know, they loved each other because they're sixth graders and it's true love. So she sent the picture and then they thought it would be really funny. The two of them together, totally consensual, totally in good fun, thought it would be really funny to doctor the picture and give her porn star boobs. Oh. And yeah. And so when they did that, then they were even more amused by their <laughs> extreme creativity and it was hilarious. And because it was hilarious, they decided to send it to the 45 students, boys and girls in their shared text oh, group. Yeah. Oh. And so it actually gets worse, <laughs> believe it or not. But the way it gets worse, I think, says so much about boys and how they love hard and they care hard and they mean well, and they're just making some blunders along the way. So what right. happened next is the kids in this text group didn't give them the reaction that they wanted. There was this kind of stunned silence, you know, sort of mm. a dude, what are you thinking? At which point the girl was no longer happy with this decision. The and the boy was feeling bad that she wasn't feeling good about it. So he did the most logical, rational, reasonable, caring, loving thing he could possibly do, which was to 
post a picture, doctored picture of himself. Uh, oh boy. <laughs> it makes sense in like sixth I mean, grade boy world. Right, right. It made a lot of sense to him and it was, it was loving. It was really caring and he felt bad that she was embarrassed and he didn't want her to be, feel alone. So he did the same thing. And of course, his gesture was met with the exact same response as hers, only at this point, I think a mother who was monitoring somebody in that group chats, texts shut the thing down. And that was the end of it. But what I love about that story is that it reveals so much about boys at this age. You know, they love hard, they care hard, they mean well, they want to be funny, they want to be liked, they want to connect and impress, but they don't really have that skill set to pull it off in a way that doesn't sometimes occasionally result in humiliation and embarrassment you know, and, and odd shock on the part of the parent. Right. That story also reveals to me why parenting these children is so challenging because when we put our lens on that without talking to the children we can get a whole different narrative out of that mm -hmm. and if we start reacting based on that then we create misunderstanding and distance and anger and that's problematic and then the other thing it makes me think about in your book you used the term hinge generation, a hinge generation to describe this generation of boys. And I sort of feel like they're caught between the social norms that used to say some things were acceptable. This whole uber masculine, I slept with her, hey, did you see on that one? And where we're going, where increasingly we're saying, you know, that's not cool. And yet boys are living in this here and now. This is a lot to unpack. It really is. And I don't think we give boys a space to talk about those issues and they don't really know how to interpret these really complex adult ideas about consent and harassment. They have very concrete questions. You know, how many times can you ask a girl out before it's harassment? Can you look at a girl the wrong way? You know, and another kid might say, well, it depends on how you're looking at them and where you're looking at them. And they're really trying to make sense of all of this and figure it out. And they don't know if it's not okay to date someone who's a year younger, is that okay? And they don't want to get in trouble. And they also are internalizing some of these messages. And I hate the phrase toxic masculinity, because at a t especially for tween boys, because at an age when they're really forming their identity, they're being bombarded with, these, with this negative terminology and language is really powerful. And so I think as parents, the best thing we can do to combat those types of messages is to really not shame them when they make the kinds of mistakes we're talking about with that text group chain, but to really validate, you know, I can see why you made that choice and I know it came from a good place and then switch to the but, but here's why it's not a great idea. Mm -hmm. And then to talk about what they can do to either make it right or to behave differently going down the road and what other options they might have had in that moment and really helping them think critically about what they're doing so that when they do make those kinds of errors, it's a one-time error and not the start of a mass sexting campaign. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be right back after this message talking about your son and his desire for autonomy, balancing that with his ability to be independent. Looking for safe, effective acne treatment for your son? Try Strike Club. Developed by a pediatric dermatologist, 
Strike Club is a line of face wash, body wash, and blemish control designed specifically for boys. Created with clean ingredients rated safe by the Environmental Working Group, Strike Club is simple, safe, and affordable. Check it out. Go to strikeclub.com, S-T-R-Y-K-E club.com, and use our discount code on boys to save 10%. So along those lines, Phyllis, I have a mom who is struggling with her middle school boy. And the struggle is, and it, it's, it's similar because it's like they want their autonomy. They want to be able to do these things. So he's in eighth grade. He's has some F's. He's got some learning challenges, but he's saying to his parents, I want to do this. I, I've got this. I want to be in charge of my school and doing my homework and all of that. And it's like, yay, let's celebrate that. And there's no framework there. He's failing. And yet he's, you know, he's, saying back off i want to have this independence but there isn't the skill set and ability yet to follow through on that desire and we want him to have that and nurture that meanwhile he's failing three classes so you don't want to extinguish his desire for autonomy and you want to be conveying that you admire that quality in him and that you want him to be successful independently. And I would turn it into a question and really show some curiosity. I imagine it's not that satisfying to get F's and it's probably somewhat surprising because it sounds like you really thought you had it under control. What do you think isn't working for you? Let's think about some solutions going forward that would help you be more successful. And, you know, from the parent end, you can help with time management. Mm -hmm. You can help them decide if they want to work near you at the kitchen table or if they want it or if they can handle working upstairs. You can help them figure out if maybe they have a phone on hand and they're really being inefficient and don't realize how much time they're spending talking to friends instead of doing what they need to get done. You can help them talk about when they are going to go in for extra help. You can make sure they have a an uncluttered study space and they have the equipment they need. But when it comes to quality and the actual execution on the skills the teachers are trying to impart, I really discourage parents from having it out with their kids. I would really punt it back to the school and let them figure out what that child needs in order to be successful. They may come back and say he could use a tutor or some help with executive functioning, but I would really involve the school and almost be like an anthropologist or a detective and try to find out what are the classes in which he's struggling and what's different about those classes. He's not feeling everything. So Mm. he is Mm. pulling off that independence in some classes. What's different about those classes? And start from that positive point, start from those strengths and say, I can see that you really have it together in this class. There's obviously something different in these other courses. Let's try to figure this out together. So you're not solving it for them. You're not telling them what to do. If you're dictating their choices, you're done. You know, you'll end up in a game of tug of war. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, surprisingly, one of those Fs is his PE class where he is clashing with his teacher. And Jen, I know this will sound familiar. (laughs) With my kid, it was the art teacher, not the PE teacher. Right. So, So talk about this clash with boys and their teachers and 
these parents are really struggling because there's only one PE teacher and the PE teacher is not open to having a conversation about the child's behavior in that class. And, you know, it, it, it just does remind me of the art teacher that Jen's son had. And there are these clashes of personalities. And as adults with our lens, we're sitting over on the sidelines going, well, everyone's different and you have to figure out how to make it work. And yet, again, when you're a middle school boy and you don't have the skill set yet to have those conversations with the teacher, what do you do when they're kind of locked in this battle and how do you break the cycle of that clash? You know, to be honest, it's part of why I wrote the book because I think that there's an empathy deficit on the part of adults for boys Thank you. And yes, and there's this, when there's this lack of a common language between parents and teachers to talk about the developmental phase and help boys be their best selves, teachers and any other adults really, coaches who are working with boys can make the mistake of thinking a child is trying to be disrespectful or trying to be contrary or just goofing off for the heck of it. And really nine times out of 10, there's something, again, you got to put on that scuba suit and go under the surface. Why, what's different about that class? Is it that they think the teacher doesn't like them? And that's something that's very common with this phase as well, that a child, they're already pretty bad at accurately interpreting feedback. They're already prone to reading negativity and to almost neutral expressions. I often will tell teachers you have to be really careful to make sure your tone and your expression and your language and your body language are all in alignment because as soon as there is a mismatch, kids will sniff out that inauthenticity and immediately conclude that you think poorly of them. So what I've done in the past, and this is something that you could ask, that mother could ask the counselor at the school to do, is to go and observe the class. Mm. Observe the kid in the PE class and report back what they see. Now, I've done that and I've had situations where I've been able to report back to the child, you know, help me understand what you're feeling because I'm not actually seeing any bias here. You know, the kid will say, I'm sure that this teacher hates me. They're always yelling at me. They're always punishing me. And there are times when they're they're off base. And when, with that one particular child, when I said, help me understand, she, it was a girl in this case, she recalled that early in the semester, she had asked for an extra point on a test and the teacher had been irritated. And I'm sure the teacher was irritated by her, you know, sort of braid grabbing for that extra point. But when I checked in with the teacher with the child's permission, the teacher had no memory of that incident and there was no hostility and the girl had inflated this to the point where it was getting in the way of her ability to interact and and function in the class. So the solution in that case was to build that relationship. They had a few lunches together. They had a conversation about how that had not irreparably damaged that relationship. So what I would be looking to do with that PE class is number one, to be observing the dynamic and getting a sense. It could be that it's a teacher with a really short fuse or a low frustration threshold and a child who really knows how to push his buttons. 
So you're on the one hand working with your child to not push the buttons and maybe you'd get some information from the school on how they're doing that. On the flip side, maybe work with the teacher on helping them understand what the boy's challenge is. Is he trying to impress his friends? Does he feel like he's not as good at sports as his classmates? And this is, does he feel bad about his body and this is an uncomfortable space for him? Is there anything they can do to make this class more comfortable for him? And then to also make sure that the feedback that they're perceiving is accurate and build the relationship between the teacher and the student. We've previously talked a lot about the man box on this podcast, about these expectations that just keep our boys and men sort of constricted, these ideas of what they should be and what they should not be. You have done an interesting activity with your boys group to help boys wrestle with all of this. Can you describe that and then how parents might be able to do something similar with their guys at home? Yeah, sure. So the man box activity for any of your listeners who don't know what it is, and you can adapt it based on the needs of your group. But what I did is that I um, printed out probably a couple hundred adjectives and they were everything from tender to compassionate to strong, ambitious, uh, athletic, sporty, intellectual, and on and on. And then I asked the boys to tell me whether or not, and I wasn't looking for them to think about it deeply, I wanted their knee-jerk reaction, whether or not they thought that it was a word that society would consider to be attributable to a quote-unquote real man, and if it could be something that, a quality that a quote-unquote real man possessed, it could go in the man box, and if it couldn't, then it stayed outside the man box. And then what I had them do is I read off another list of adjectives and I asked them to write down ones that they felt described them. And then we talked about the disconnect between the way they described themselves and the things that they valued in their own life versus what society was telling them to value and what society was telling them that they should be, just to really point out this vast divide between what they wanted to be and who they really were and the mask really that they had to wear in order to walk through this, you know, at, through the world as a boy. And as a corollary, a really interesting experiment that I did later and from the get-go, and this is such a typical middle school boy thing too, from the get-go, from the moment they first met, they really wanted to do it because they felt like if the girls had a girls group, then they should have a boys group. <laughs> you know, at first it wasn't really as much because they wanted to challenge, you know, societal norms. They were just aggravated that there was a girls group, but no boys group. And they felt boys were treated unfairly too. And boys had stuff that they had to worry about too, and that we should be giving equal attention to what boys had to worry about. And of course they were right. They just were not yet putting as much emphasis on their own needs as I felt that they should. So when they, asked to meet with a girls group so they could convince the girls that their uh, burden was equally heavy. I said, I love the idea, but we're going to wait. I knew it would be combative and unproductive if we did it at that point. I wanted them to work on themselves first, but I said, at some point, I will bring you together when you're ready. So periodically, they would ask whether it was time to meet with the girls group. And they kept asking me what the girls thought about the fact that they were having this boys group and what the girls were saying about the boys group. And if it bothered the girls that there was a boys group. And finally, I, I had to tell them the truth. Like, the girls are not thinking about you at all. At <laughs> all. <laughs> 
at all. And part of that is a reflection of where we are in society. You know, for a much longer time, we've given girls a space and a way to think about what they're confronting and what about sexism and you know glass ceilings and all of those things. And we've had Title IX. Girls have a language and they're having an easier time sharing those thoughts and feelings with peers anyway. So they they were so far along. They were working on advocacy and fundraising for political campaigns. You know, they were really not at all thinking about these boys. But what's interesting is that about 18 months later, my boys were ready. And I brought them together with the girls group. And we did not just the man box activity. We did the woman box activity. And I asked them to, again, without thinking, say whether the adjective belonged or the, the quality belonged, characteristic belonged in the man box, according to society, or belonged in the woman's box, according to society. I had them all answer at the same time. And it was sort of just based on voice consensus where it was going to go. It was almost near unanimous agreement on every single one. And for the parts, the boys and girls were in complete agreement for both. So they just collectively decided things like tender and compassionate could go into the girls box only and things like strong and ambitious could go into the boys box only. And what was really powerful about this activity was that they were able to see with such clarity that when you address one group's issues and the constraints that one group is grappling with, then that benefits both that benefits everybody they were really on the same team and it it was clear to both of them at that point it's such a concrete exercise too which is great because kids this age they're beginning to have abstract thoughts and be able to function on that but they're still really concrete in a lot of ways so when you can literally see that we put strong up here for boys but then over here is this girl who does shot put and is awesome well clearly she's strong so wait maybe these things that we've been taught aren't entirely accurate it it helps them see this in themselves and in their friends and it also makes them feel a little manipulated by society and if you Mm. really want to get a kid to have the courage to break outside of those constraints tell them that society is manipulating them at this for this age group that's a really powerful motivator and so if they feel like someone is telling them who they should be and what they should do then they are going to bristle they are not going to like all of these adults being so directive with them about their choices and behaviors and they're going to be more likely to actually act as their authentic self so phyllis i asked in my boys alive facebook group if anyone had questions for you and they were very excited that we could bring this directly to you and okay. one of the questions was how to keep them safe from trying vaping and other substances that their friends might have so i recently learned about something called inoculation theory It's a professor, Josh Compton at Dartmouth College. And what inoculation theory is, is this idea that you can inoculate someone against a behavior you don't want them to do in the same way you inoculate them against a virus. And the way it works is, and I'll use vaping in this case as an example, although what's cool about this research is that if you do it with enough scenarios, it will generalize and it will be able to apply. I'll I'll give you a second example after. So for vaping, you might say to them, when you are at school, there might be a time when there are kids who want you to come. 
escape with them in the bathroom. And you might want to do it because you really want to fit in with those friends and you don't really think vaping is that dangerous. It's basically just fruity flavors and it's not as bad as smoking. But actually, that's the advertisers trying to convince you when in fact there is a lot of good science that says that it's just as addictive as smoking and it's this, these are the various ways it can harm you. And you're not looking to use scare tactics. You have to make sure that you're giving them factual information. But what you're doing is you're telling them what kind of situation they might face and you're giving them a way to think it through in multiple ways before they're in it. So and another example, yeah, go ahead. And again, you're kind of using their desire to not be manipulated by the media, by other people. You're using that in a positive way. Yes. Here's another example. Let's say gossip. You might say to your kid, and by the way, boys gossip as much as girls, which is another myth that people have that only girls engage in relational aggression. Boys can be pretty good at it too. So you could say to them, when someone tells you a really juicy piece of information, you are going to be tempted to share it because everyone likes to have the best story and it is fun to be the keeper of information. But you know what's even more satisfying? To be known as a loyal and trustworthy friend, to be the person that people come to when something really important and big is going on in their life. So you're framing these scenarios in ways where you're acknowledging what they're going to have to be, what they're up against, you know, that interference. And interference can be all kinds of things. It could be wanting to fit in. It could be jealousy. It could be anger. It could be fear. It could be anything. So you're priming them to expect that interference and then giving them a counter dialogue that they can retrieve in these moments where they're going to be tempted to do the wrong thing. Brilliant. I wish I'd talked to you three kids ago, Phyllis. So Phyllis, I'm just curious how... I work with a lot of parents and I just want to like give them the support and the love and the reassurance and it's all going to be okay. And yet they're uh, future pacing. They're worried their, their middle schooler isn't going to get into college and they're going to end up in jail. And how do we reassure parents, bring them back into the present with their kids even though it might feel kind of ugly in the present with out of control behavior. With a kid who's sending pictures of his privates to his friend. <laughs> Experimenting with vaping and other substances, cursing at their parents, not, you know, not getting off devices when asked, playing loud music. What are your words? I know that's a lot, but what are, what are your words of reassurance to these parents? I would worry when your kid stops pushing back because when your kid is arguing with you, when your kid is pushing your buttons, then what they are doing is they think they're having a productive conversation with you. They're trying to figure out what mysterious thing is going on in your head. Yes, they might rebel against it, but they also very much care about your values and what you expect and hope for them. And they also have big dreams and hopes for themselves. And they too are frustrated when it's messy and things don't go as planned. And I just remind parents that isn't the greater gift to let them 
experiment and make mistakes and be there to help them recover and help them build that resilience so that when they're 30 and they're not by their side, they know what they need to do to pick up the pieces. They know how to make amends. They know how to regulate their emotions. I would, as a parent, just constantly look at it as skill building. What got in their way? Why were they talking back to the teacher? Why are they arguing with me? What is it that they need? And how is there an alternative way that I can meet this need so that it's not quite as messy? And how can I give them a path back to being a good kid as quickly as possible and just be consistent and loving because shame is going to get you nowhere anyway. And if we maintain high expectations, the research shows that they're more likely to live up to our expectations. But those expectations also have to be reasonable. And it's just a fact that parenting is kind of a messy and uneven path. And kids have big growth spurts intellectually and emotionally. And sometimes they take two steps back. And the best we can do for them is to help them recover from those mistakes and move forward. If you have not picked up a copy of Phyllis's book yet, I highly recommend it. It is Middle School Matters, the 10 Key Skills Kids Need to Thrive in Middle School and Beyond. And she's got a whole separate chapter in there specifically looking at boys. So if that's your uh, concern, you can skip right ahead to that one. But there's a lot of great stuff in here, Phyllis. And if you are on Twitter, follow her on Twitter. She shares the most hilarious anecdotes and conversations with middle school kids. And it, it reminds you of where their heads really are at. Thank you. So, so Phyllis, where can people find you? So I have a website, which is phyllisfagel.com. I am on Twitter. That's at pfagel. And I fairly regularly have a column in the Washington Post and the book, of course. The book, of course. Yes. Thank <laughs> you so much for being that person who's, as we're recording this, you are sitting in your middle school counseling office for being on <laughs> the scene every day. We all appreciate you doing that and helping these kids grow and also just sharing your wisdom with parents and other educators. Thank you. Well, thank you for... Thank you for having me on. I, I love this age group. Thanks for joining On Boys, real talk about parenting, teaching, and reaching tomorrow's men.